Well, uh, as much as possible, I try to steer clear of politics in the pulpit. Some of you have noticed that uh, painfully in 2020, 2021. The goal of the pulpit is to draw the eyes upward to eternal things and to call the mind and heart to adore Jesus. That's my one job behind the pulpit is to open the word of God to let you behold Jesus, to take a break from all the temporary things, and to fall deeper and deeper in love with your Lord and Savior, who's the eternal King. However, this Sunday I could not help myself. So for the first time ever, politics is just briefly coming into the pulpit. The very public events of the last few years, I think, may help us better appreciate what the Pharisees and Sadducees are attempting to do when they approach Jesus. Every four years, we have the not-so-joyful pleasure of watching politicians play the campaigning game. Teams are formed. Strategies are planned. Target audiences are identified. Logos, websites, commercials, and billboard signs are published. It really is quite the show. And an expensive show at that. Any guesses, any guesses at all as to how much our country racked up in just campaigning advertisement in 2020? Billion. $14 billion. A record of all time. $14 billion in doing what? Making logos, making strategies, making public images. But most importantly, digging up the dirt on the other guy. And they all sit together. They, they create these teams where they sit down. It, it, doesn't take, it doesn't take a political commentator to see that for both sides, in almost every election in the last few years, the strategy for winning is simple. Make the other guy look bad while making yourself look as good as possible. That's pretty much the strategy. So using this strategy, everything during the political season becomes a potential trap. What do you think about mask? Nobody say anything. Nobody say anything. <laughs> There's a Babylon Bee article that said that... Um, uh, people are confused because a guy wearing a MAGA hat was wearing a mask. So they didn't know really where he stood in the political thing. <laughs> what do you think about masks? Because apparently what you say will reveal something about your political leaning. How are your feelings about COVID? <laughs> we don't want anybody's political dirt coming out. What's your perspective on the economy? How about this? What about immigration? Let's just get even deeper. How about the education system? What about racism? Should we love black people or should we accept CRT? You, know, you see that everything's a potential trap. Everything, how you feel. If you say one thing, and I felt it, if I, as a pastor, admit racism's a thing and it exists, then I must be for CRT. If I'm not for CRT, then I must be a racist. It's everything is a potential trap these days, isn't it? And that's our whole political system. Do you like Dr. Pepper or Coke? How you answer that might just reveal your political leanings. My friends, we as people, and I, and I hope you're laughing because I'm not intending to offend either side of this. I'm just drawing out as an observer what I see in our election process. We tend to create these unsolvable conundrums, right? We tend to communicate, we try to create these dilemmas. Entire campaign teams anticipate and discuss these questions, how they should be answered, and perhaps most importantly, how they'll impact the candidate's public image. If you want some fun entertainment, um, just YouTube sometime, the six greatest political gaffes of all time. There's one guy that tells a lady he respects her position to her face. He, he's in Britain, so he's not in America, so it's easier to laugh at the British political gaffes. 
He shakes her hand, he hugs her, he tells her he respects her opposing position, and then he gets in the car and forgets that his mic is on. And then comes the truth of how he feels about this woman. My friends, that's our political game. Now, what's the point in drawing out this awkward truth about our politics? I think that's the game that the Pharisees are playing here. When we look at their questions, they're trying to create these unsolvable conundrums. They're just playing political games, and they're inviting Jesus into it. They want to make Jesus look bad so that they can continue to retain their power as the religious elite. So they make these dilemmas. Man, they have played the political game well all through the campaign. They have spread rumors that his power secretly derives from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They call the team together and discuss how they're going to trip him up. How can we use the fact that he eats with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners against him? Does he wear the right number of tassels? You know, we noticed him once plucking heads from the grain in the wrong way. Can we put that on a billboard? And their plots eventually lead them to come with these series of political, legal conundrums. Questions meant to put Jesus in a public rock in a hard place. Now, regardless of who you are, every election season, every side has their political gaffe moments, right? Where they say something, oh, I didn't really mean that. They have to come back and retract. I mean, every side, retract, 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 retract what they said because they get put in these public rocks in a hard place. Jesus doesn't retract. Jesus doesn't care what public image looks like. Jesus doesn't play political games because, my friends, I've got good news for you today. Jesus ain't campaigning for your vote. Matthew's gospel says one particular poignant message. Jesus is king. Whether you like his public image or not, whether you agree with his message or not, Jesus is king. And what I love about this passage is it shows that Jesus doesn't care about winning political power or legal victories. This is the key opportune time for him just to embarrass the pants off of these lawyers, the Pharisees, and to assert himself in political power. And yet, what does he do? He keeps his eyes focused on the bloody cross ahead. Everything he does at this very moment is meant to show that he has come to bring sinful mankind back to God. That's our Savior. What does your Savior care about? Your salvation. He'll solve the politics when he's king. He'll solve the legal dilemmas. He's the just king. And scripture always tells us, listen, whether we figure it out or not, justice will roll down when Christ is king. Righteousness will come. Jesus will settle it. Jesus will solve it. Jesus will fix it. Jesus will make it new. But you need to know right now, regardless of all that, that Jesus is at this very moment the wise and only king. And that's what we hold on to as the people of God I've always been told I oversimplify things. That, that I don't quite get the political issues. I don't quite get the, you know, what's at stake. That's probably true. But the gospel's for children like me. And so let me just bask in my simplicity here. I'm very, very happy at this very moment. Knowing that I may not have very many political advocates, but I have a king. I don't need them. I don't need to win political arguments. I don't need to win legal issues. My Jesus is sovereign. They killed him, and it didn't change the plan. Now, before we look at these Pharisees and Sadducees, again, this is probably the most you'll hear politics in this pulpit, and it's meant to be equal offenders on all sides, because this is a political game that's at stake with the Pharisees. They care about their power. They care about their elitism. They care about how they're held in the public image. And so this is very much a political game. And I don't think we can understand this text unless we see that that is the desire of their heart. is to engage in this game with Jesus. 
Now, before we look at their specific questions, it's important to pay attention to the brief insider knowledge that Matthew gives, gives us. Matthew tells us from the forefront, these guys are not here to play nice. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, literally how to trap him in his own words. Can you imagine having Jerusalem's religious elite after you? We're out to get him. Imagine, let's just imagine in our own day, let's just say that the president decided that he wanted to put you out of all the nation on the hot spot to answer some of these tough questions. How many of you would volunteer? And none of us would, in our right minds would want that job, right? But Jesus gets this kind of attention from the political leaders. They want to know, they want him to settle these long-standing legal political conundrums in all of history. Jesus solved the mask issue. Jesus solved the immigration issue. And they're hoping that his answer will in some way set the noose that will then hang him and show him to be a fraud. That's what they want. Luke puts it more bluntly. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. Press him hard. And to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait to catch him in something he might say. Now in this we take up, he takes, they take up the role of the enemies of the righteous that we see in the Old Testament who lay snares, they lay traps, and they hate the one who speaks the truth. You see that in Amos 5.10. They are like Psalm 22's bulls of Bashan. All they care about is picking on this guy, goring him to death. They are the ones who surround God's righteous one to try to unjustly kill him. Their words might be smooth as butter. I love the way that Psalm 55, 21 says that. Their words are smooth as butter, softer than oil, but war is in their heart and their swords are drawn against him. That's the picture that we see of the Pharisees. Smooth like butter. And they're great politicians. They're great politicians. Smooth like butter, softer than oil. Swords drawn in their heart, ready to stab the Savior. They come to him calling him teacher, which sounds nice and respectful, but if you remember, the only people that call Jesus teacher in Matthew's gospel are the people who don't like him. So typically when somebody comes to Jesus saying teacher, it's already just a little glimpse, a little foreshadow, preview, that they don't really see him for who he is. He's not Lord, like you see the prostitutes and the Samaritan woman calling him, right? The Canaanite woman. They call him Lord, son of David. What do the Pharisees, the rich guys, the Sadducees call him? Teacher, because they don't want him to break into the Lord's side. They don't want to admit is any kind of divine authority in and of himself. They come acting as if they have sincere questions. We really want to know this, but they don't want to know. They don't want him to be able to teach him. All they have in their hearts is malice and hypocrisy. Smooth talkers though they be, their hearts are hard, and they want to put a legal noose around the Messiah's neck. I think you need to understand that about the Pharisees here. Their one goal is to maintain their power in Jerusalem. Even if it means rejecting the Son of God. Even if it means testing, tempting, putting God in flesh in a political, legal conundrum. God forbid we ever do anything like that. So the Pharisees make their plans, and they decide to send a delegation of their disciples and Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? The Herodians are the political party of the day. These are Herod's people, okay? If you want to know who the Old Testament Republicans were, it's Herodians. If you want to know, or the Jesus' day, not Old Testament, Jesus' day Republicans were Pharisees and Herodians. The New Testament equivalent of liberals were the Sadducees. Now, we're going to get questions from both of them, and here's the key indicator of both of them. People on both sides, conservative and liberal, liberal still reject Jesus. 
It's amazing. The Pharisees, as conservative as they are, patriotic, national-minded, so-called God-loving, still reject Jesus. Liberals who are like, God's word doesn't matter, reject Jesus. So I'm just going to tell you, (laughs) both sides can do it. And we're going to see it actively today. Here's what these conservatives say to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do, not know, you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Literally, in Greek, they say, you don't look at men's faces. That's what it means. Now, now that idiom just simply means when you talk, you don't look to see if we approve. You don't look at men's faces. You don't care whether people actually think what you say is true or not. You just speak the truth. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And notice how high their flattery goes. They outright call Jesus true. They even say, we know that you preach the way of God truthfully. And they, they are verbally flattering. Jesus, man, it's just gushing out smooth as butter, soft as oil. Yet they hate him. They can't stand him. Because here's the thing. If they meant what they said, then why have they not yet repented and followed? You say you like Jesus. You say you love Jesus. You say he speaks the truth. You say he's a good guy. Everything you say is revealed to be a lie when you don't stop, repent, and follow. That's the proof in the pudding. Say what you want. But it's all flattery. Their words are a pillow, but their question is a hidden dagger. Now, why is it so politically tricky? Why is this issue of taxes? If Jesus says yes, this is where the politicalness gets into it. If Jesus says yes, that they should pay taxes to Caesar, then they can attack his Israelite patriotism and devotion to God. Israelites shouldn't be paying taxes to Rome. Those New Testament communists, those empiricists, those empires, nobody should be paying taxes to Rome. We're Israel first. You see how it's going to make somebody mad if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. They're going to be like, whoa, you're not a patriot, Jesus. And you're all about giving that image bearing, that graven image coin back to an idol worshiping Caesar. You must not love God. Now, if Jesus says no, guess what then they can do? They can accuse him of insurrection and the Romans will do the rest. How would you have answered that? Being in the political hotspot, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Boy, I was reading that and that made me sweat. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a patriot. I would want people to understand that I'm for my nation. I love my country. I love my God. But at the same time, I, I, I do believe that paying taxes and, and obeying the government is a part of divine authority. But boy, is it hard to answer this question. Am I a patriot and a God lover? Or am I an insurrectionist? <laughs> Jesus didn't sweat. He sees their malice. He sees the heart. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? They flattered him. He doesn't flatter them. You two-facers. Seeing that the only other being who tests Jesus is Satan, their particular legal dilemma here, political dilemma here, is devilish. Demonic, in a sense. So Jesus asks for a coin, and they bring him a denarius. He takes it and asks, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, just like coins in our day, money bore the image of of a nation's leader. In this case, it bore Caesar's image. The Pharisees and the Herodians readily identify this. It's Caesar's image. It's got his face, his image on the coin. Okay? Now, the test is set. What is Jesus going to say? Well, he holds up the coin. Whose image is this? It's Caesar's. And here's what Jesus says. Render to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. Do you hear what Jesus does there? He blows their false dichotomy out of the water. You want to make him a patriot and a God lover or an insurrectionist? He blows that dilemma up. Don't come to God with falsely made, insincere dilemmas. God is a really simple God. He thinks in simple terms in the sense of, this is what I want. I want you to be devoted to me, and I want you to give to Caesar what Caesar, but give to God what is God's. Very simple answer. There's not, there's not this, he just, he, he, he just smooths his way into the answer. Man, I, I wish we had that same kind of tag sometimes. I wish I could do that in preaching. Just get up, somebody ask a question, answer it, and then sit down. But man, he just smooths his way into this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the things that are God's. Uh, the, the, to God, the things that are God's. Now, here's what it ends up doing. It reveals the state. You see, he turns the trap back on them. They set a trap for the righteous one. And yet, in his wisdom, he says, you know what? You're questioning my devotion to God, and you're the one that is failing to give to God what is God's. You're the man. You're the insurrectionist who is rebelling not against Caesar, but against the divine throne itself. You see, at the end of the day, whatever your political viewpoints may be, whatever your legal issues might be, everyone stands before the king of heaven. You see, Jesus puts the question of taxes in its rightful place. To them, it's the most important question. Do we pay taxes or not? And Jesus says, eh, pay your taxes, but you better be rendering to God what's God's. Let's put it in its proper place. The issue of taxes has been around for a long time. All the political baggage that go with it has been around for a long time, but my goodness, one thing we should be obsessed about is giving to God what is God's. You see, sometimes we, we, we make a mountain over something that's temporary, thinking it has eternal ramifications. And Jesus says, no, the real eternal ramifications are whether or not you're devoting yourself, all of yourself. What is God's? What belongs to God? Everything. Everything. Every word, every thought, every eye movement, every breath, everything belongs to God's. Do you then give him everything? Now, I read this text. It stirred my heart up to adoration. But it also just convicted me. Your pastor has political views too. Your pastor makes judgments against people based on what they say or what they do too. Because I am, guess what? A sinful human being. So what is the warning here? The practical warning. Don't repeat the Pharisees' bad habits of creating false dichotomies. Don't repeat their bad habits. Like the Pharisees, we sometimes overcomplicate the simplicity of God's will and commands. The simplicity of God's will and commands. For example, we know that God wants us to love people sincerely in real and practical ways. Not just to say we love people, not just to say we don't have anything against anybody, but to actually love them, which most of the time means being present with them. Right? You can't love your wife from a distance. You can't love your neighbor while you're sitting alone in your living room. He wants you to love in a real and practical, present way. Sometimes we Christians, churchgoers, can be so obsessed in arguing about theoretical conundrums that we fail to do much of anything Man, we want to know whether or not the theory is right or wrong. But if our theoretical arguments are not matched by active, real love, by actually not just arguing about theory, but to actively, practically apply love, friends, we're not doing anything. Nothing. 
Jesus doesn't get into that kind of political trap. He doesn't argue about the theory of taxes. He calls them to practical devotion to God. To give everything to him. And I I, want to tell you something. If Jesus doesn't step into these theoretical, political, legal conundrums, but constantly points people to something better, does he expect you to do any different? Let me just ask a couple of loaded questions here. Why do I spend so much time arguing about legal dilemmas? While all the while I forget to actively obey his command to love. Can I just be pointed here for a second? We have argued more about whether CRT is a thing or not. But how many black people have you actually had at your table? How many African-American coworkers have you actually stepped across the line to go love? Your theory is new. The world's theory is new. But the command to love is ancient and old and it will forever be here. You can argue all you want about CRT and whether you're for it or against it. But whichever side you fall on, if you do not practically love people, you're not obeying God. We can argue about the theory of immigration all we want. But if we're not stepping across fences to love people, to care, to pray for, to share the gospel, I mean, that's practical love. Practical love. My friends, this is painful because I have come to realize this myself. I love theoretical engagement. I love arguments. In the sense of, let's go, I was trained for this. I love sitting on my butt with a cup of coffee arguing about theory. (sighs) But I have to go to my neighbor and take them dinner? You see what we do? Here's the irony of it all. 2020, 2021, we have wasted so much time on theories. And we have not spent time loving people. Can we just be honest about that? We've spent so much time arguing about politics and issues and whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And all the while, Jesus is saying, give to God what's God's. Your time, your money, your fence, your back patio, your fire pit, your food, your resources. I mean, it's very simple. I I may be oversimplifying it, and you may be saying, Pastor, you don't get what's at stake. You're right. I probably don't. But one thing I do know that's at stake, people are dying and going to hell. That's what's at stake. People aren't hearing about the good news of Jesus for all people, regardless of skin color, regardless of background, regardless of national affiliation. People are going to hell without Jesus. That's what's at stake. So I'll just turn it back. I don't think you get it. Don't come to Jesus with your false dichotomies. He calls you to love people, not debate theory. That's a pastoral rebuke for all of us, including myself. You ask me on Monday what I think about CRT, you will not hear a dang thing because I'm not wasting my time. But what I have done over the last year is try to better my relationships with people. My friends, I I serve as the vice president at Southern Bible Institute and College, and one of the things I love doing is grabbing lunch with my black friends to pray, to hear their hearts, to weep with them. I wasn't there for the George Floyd thing. I, don't, I, wasn't, I wasn't a witness. But it hurts my friends. And I want to pray for them. I wasn't there for 9-11. But if I know someone that lost a husband in 9-11, my job's not there to argue theory about who was behind the conspiracy and who really did it. Did George Bush know or not? 
My job is to weep. To cry, to open my arms, to hug. To push the warm cup of coffee a little closer and say, drink deep and feel loved. Theories come and go. Masks come and go. COVID comes and goes. Presidents come and go. Political parties come and go. But the command to love God and neighbor never goes away. It's possible to put too much stock in arguing our viewpoints and positions and not enough active hand-moving love I think we, 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 we care too much about too many certain things. The Pharisees cared too much about theory. They were, they were upset about what it looked like for the Messiah to sit at a table and eat with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. But guess who wasn't eating with them? The Pharisees. Their problem was a lack of practical, real love. I'm not saying don't have debates. I'm not saying don't have arguments. I'm not saying don't discuss things. Discussions are important, but discussions only go so far. We can talk ourselves to death. I can tell my wife every single day, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, but if I do nothing else, do I really love her? We act as if God just sanctified our word. Have you ever thought that God might have sanctified your backyard, your dinner table, your money to now be used to reach this increasingly lost world? Every Sunday, it's a choice. Preach the word of God and bring us back to simplicity or to make a few people mad. My friends... Render to Caesar's what Caesar's. I'll be honest with you, Caesar's dead. Rome is gone. They have his palace under ruins. It really wasn't that important. But what was? The Pharisees never got around to being devoted to God. They were too busy with the tax issue. Now, what about the resurrection? That's just the first question. I really got to step this up. Wow. The Herodians and the Pharisees leave, and the Sadducees, the liberals, decide to come take their shot at Jesus, right? Because the liberals don't want Jesus coming in as king any more than the conservative Pharisees do. They did not want to admit that they weren't the religious elite and that they needed to submit and repent to the king. So they come to Jesus. Now, a little bit about the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe any books of the Bible after Deuteronomy. So that's why I'm calling them the liberals of their day. It's like, Genesis, Deuteronomy, cut it off. That's all that the word of God is. First Samuel, second Samuel, Ruth, all these things, all these other uh, books that we have in our Bible, none of them counted to the Sadducees. And the resurrection is just some kind of theory. Again, it's not a real thing. And so they come to Jesus and they reveal their insincerity, asking about the resurrection. They don't even believe in the resurrection, but they're going to try to trip up Jesus with the resurrection. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and marry, uh, marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're referring to the Leveret Law. Uh, you can go read that in Leviticus and then Deuteronomy, where this was a real thing back then. To have no offspring meant that your line was wiped out. It was the worst possible thing that could happen in the Old Testament. What does Jesus do? What do they do? What do they ask? Um, they ask a hypothetical question. Man marries a woman. This man has six other brothers. He dies, no children. Next up, he dies, no children. Next up, he dies, no children. All the way to the seventh. This is the woman with the worst luck in all of history. Finally, she dies. Then comes the question. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Again, a seemingly impossible legal conundrum here. If Jesus says one of them, then he's basically lessened the point that all of them had consummated their marriage. He is basically uh, picking adultery. 
She goes to one of them when she's had physical consummation with all of them, which makes her a harlot. The other option, the resurrection's not true. So there's no problem because no one's going to be raised from the dead. That's what they're wanting Jesus to pick. So either reveal yourself to be a Sadducee, liberal, or call the woman a harlot and say that the resurrection's got inconsistencies in it. Again, Jesus doesn't play. They have a fundamental error. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, if in the first question, the Pharisees and the Herodians had the problem that they weren't sincerely devoted to God, this is another problem. The Sadducees don't know God. They don't know his word. The Sadducees are guilty of what many still do today. Have you ever heard somebody speak as if there was something in scripture? You know, the Bible says, you're like, I have no clue where that person read that. It makes being very awkward being kind of a pastor theologian who cares a lot about what's said in here and to be a normal conversation. I kind of feel like a redliner sometimes. Well, you know, the Bible says God helps those who have to, eh, eh, don't even go there. Doesn't say it. <laughs> it, feels, it makes for very awkward conversations. Well, that's what's happening here. These people give themselves too much credit. They think they're armchair theologians who know the Bible well. And because they think they know the Bible, though nothing they believe can be found in the Bible, they make their policies, they make their foundation, they make their thinking, their thought process, their logic, all based on guess what? Biblical inaccuracy. Biblical inaccuracy. How many times have our lives' policies been made because we misunderstood something Scripture said? So that's what they come with. Jesus sets out to correct their answer. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham. I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So he takes it from Exodus chapter 3. He says, look, y'all, I'll just play, I'll, I'll, I'll get on your ground. You believe there's nothing else. There's plenty in Daniel 7, for example, or Daniel 9, that talks about resurrection to the living and the dead, right? There's plenty there, but they don't, they don't even believe Daniel's in the canon. So they're going to go to Exodus. He's going to go to Exodus 3. We both accept Exodus 3 as the authoritative word of God. So let's just see what your scripture says. You see, it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. How can he be the God if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. See, here's what Jesus is saying. They have applied their errant views, and all the while they have failed to see that God is the God who keeps his promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, and yet they had not received what God promised. So either God has broken his promise, not given Abraham what he said he would give to Abraham, or Abraham's going to be raised from the dead and receive every bit of it. So he gives them a conundrum on his own. Are they willing to say that God is a God who doesn't keep his promises? You see, that's the problem. Sometimes we speak before checking. Sometimes we read too quickly. Sometimes we give ourselves too much theological credit. Trust me. I went to DBU. My friends, the Sadducees come with that same kind of mindset. That because they think it's there, it must be there. And because it must be there, and they think it's there, therefore, this is the reality. And what it reveals about them is they do not know God. There's anybody that said something like, well, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Doesn't know God. Ephesians 2 says we were dead. We were literally the epitome of those who could not help themselves. But God in his rich mercy raised us up to walk in newness of life. Be very careful to not 
replicate Sadducean error. To not know the scriptures and not know the power of God. So again, he turns it. They think they've got him in this box. And he turns it. And boy, they walk, around, they walk out of there like children or silence. Now, what about the law? Okay, let's give it three strikes are out, right? So we got one more pitch, right? Okay, we've, 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 we've uh, messed up these last two times, but maybe we can get a strike this third try. So here's what the Pharisees do. They hear that the Sadducees were silenced. Well, that, that stinks. Now we're stuck. So they decide to recruit a legal expert, a lawyer, right? Now, now the, the law is getting involved, okay? Now, if you don't know what a legal expert was in that day, this was the guy that got brought in anytime there was a dispute over what somebody should believe, think, or do. Okay, so if a man had a wreck with another cart, this guy gets brought in to open up Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and to figure out what the law says about who's at fault. So he's the, the law adjuster here, basically. You know, he's the one that's brought in in these emergency situations. And he's authoritative. Nobody questions him when he makes a judgment. Well, he comes up with this particularly unique conundrum. I can just imagine him pushing up his glasses. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Now, it's a good question. Because here's the thing. If Jesus picks one over the other, he's showing partiality to part of God's law, basically saying that the rest don't matter as much as this one. If Jesus says none then he's just blown the whole law out of the water, right? So, I mean, again, it's, a, it's another, which, which passage of the Bible is more important than the other? I don't know if I want to answer that question because I don't know. But that's essentially what they come to him. Which of the Ten Commandments, which of the law is the most important? And once again, Jesus takes a superficial legal debate and he drives it straight to the heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind. My friends, this Nazarene carpenter takes the lawyer to task. If I could just put my own paraphrase in there, in, in parentheses, the, the lawyer saying, which is the great command? In parentheses, Jesus asked back, you don't know? Because the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with loving God. And the last six have to do with loving your neighbor. So there they are. First and foremost, love God. Second, love your neighbor. You know what it reveals? That the lawyer is not doing either one of those. The lawyer is breaking the law. It's ironic to see this Pharisaic lawyer trained in Jerusalem who's in personal business with the Pharisees failing to actually grasp the law's teachings. You see, the Sadducees might not have known God's word and therefore had all kinds of errors in it. The lawyer knows God's word, but doesn't apply it. It's the opposite problem. My friends, mere assent to just be theoretically okay with what you hear from God's word is not sufficient. It comes back to love and love for God and love for neighbor. No matter how much you quote scripture, no matter how much you've memorized it, no matter how many big chunks that you could tell, this lawyer probably had Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized at any given moment. You could unroll a, a, a papyri, and there it would be. You'd say, what does it say in this section? He could tell you without looking. That is that guy. He's the churched one. And yet he doesn't love God, and he doesn't love others. And therefore, no matter how much he knows the word of God, he doesn't know the word of God. My friends, Paul tells us over and over again, if I have this and I have this and I can do this and I can speak this way and I can do this and I have this thought process, but I have not love, what am I? I'm just a clanging gong. Now, if you're a lawyer in here, I'm not claiming all lawyers are clanging gongs, but this particular guy was a clanging gong. He had not love. 
Now, Jesus comes to them with one final question. He has successfully, some might say easily, endured three attempted traps from those who want to kill him. I'm not sure I would have made it out of those traps. My flesh would have stepped in. My viewpoints would have stepped in. What I want to be true would have stepped in. I I wouldn't have made it through. Probably the first question. But Jesus, as the wise king does, and so he finally comes to them with a question of his own. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Again, a really great question. Because they say clearly and rightfully that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. That's what's the, that was the anticipation going all the way to 2 Samuel 7, that David would have a son who would reign eternal on David's throne. So the Messiah is the son of David. So they're right. But then Jesus shows them just how little they know. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now here's the reality. Back then, see, when we hear Messiah, we tend to think of God, right? Because we are on this side of history. But back then, everybody was looking for a human Messiah. If you go to Dead Sea Scrolls and you look at their anticipation, they didn't even think that the son of David would be eternal. He would just be the guy that would come and fix things, kick the Romans out, and reinstate the dynasty, die, and his sons would continue to reign. That was the anticipation. These Pharisees are looking for a merely human Messiah. David's son. And they've missed the point that he's also David's Lord, God himself. You see, they, they want a man, and Jesus addresses the fact that they have failed to see that he is the God-man. He's not just a man. He's not like us. He is God who became man, still being fully God. 100% God, 100% man. There's no way to work out that out mathematically. All you can do is allow it to break your logic. God became a man. You try to put Jesus in a box, he bursts the box, burns it for cardboard, and shows you that you have no clue. Jesus is the God-man. Now, what's ironic about that is he is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. He's God in flesh, and this God in flesh is slowly marching to the cross. So if David's son dies on the cross, so does David's Lord. The God-man died. Jesus died. And this, the, the, the irony of it all is in their rejection of Jesus, they exalt him anyway. They raise him up anyway. You see, Jesus, as David's son and David's Lord, will be king. In our day, we can say he is king. Nobody can stop it. Kill the son of David all you want. He's David's Lord, and you'll see it at the empty tomb. Well then, Jesus, one by one, takes them out, doesn't he? They're not all that devoted to God like they think they are. They don't know God. They don't know his scriptures. They don't really obey the law, love God and love others. And finally, they don't know and understand the Christ. Now that just one by one just makes me go, okay, I need to humble myself. The moment we think we have it figured out, the moment that we think we understand the way life should be, God tends to swoop in and he humbles us at that moment. Because if your understanding of life, of God, of salvation, of righteousness, of what's right and what's wrong comes down to political conundrums, legal dilemmas, political identity, social identity, whatever it is, if it comes down to that, you have not understood the grace of God. Because God has come for all nations, all tongues, every tribe, for every person who knows they're sinful and is dependent on Jesus Christ. That's who he's come for. And the moment we think we've outgrown him is the moment he shows us how small we are. So what's the grace of this text? 
My friends, Jesus may be speaking bluntly to these Pharisees, but he's drawing out the poison so that they can be healed. He's drawing out their sickness. They don't even know they're sick. They, they, they think they're healthy. And Jesus, Jesus here, live, diagnosing them. She the tumor. You see, Jesus came for Pharisees just like he came for prostitutes. But the Pharisees must humble themselves and trust in Jesus. You know, every week we talk about Jesus coming from ta- for tax collectors and sinners. That's good news for those of you that have had guilt stains all through your life and don't feel worth it. Jesus came so that you might have peace. But there's others in here that might not have lived that life. But the more you look at yourself, the more pharisaical you seem. You're not condemned. Jesus saves. Repent of your pharisaism. You see... Whether you're a prostitute or a Pharisee, salvation only comes in one name. Whether you're a Saul of Tarsus or a Samaritan woman, salvation only comes in one name. Whether you slept with seven guys this week or whether you've never had sex in your life, there's salvation in only one name. Whether you're a Red Dead Republican that voted red all the way through, or a dead-hearted blue. Salvation comes in one name. My friends, can we as a church just step back and start saying, we've overcomplicated it. Let's get back to the simple gospel. Instead of debating theories and political things and social things and all these things, why don't we just get back to actively loving people like Christ did? It really is simple. And if we're going to overcomplicate it, we're going to miss it. Jesus is the king. Simple as that. And he has called you to replicate his love. Love your neighbor as I have loved you. Simple application. Feels like crucifixion because that's how he loved us. But simple application. Let's pray. Father God, as with every week, I have gone over time due to my long-windedness, but I pray, Lord, that in these insufficient words that I have spoken, that you will work sufficient sanctification. God, you have a word for our church. You have a desire for us as your people to come back and center and unify on you. May we be a Christ-centered Make us Jesus-centered in our thinking. As much as we try to overcomplicate it, Lord, bring us back to the simple gospel. We are sinners. Jesus, as the Son of God, took on flesh, carried his cross, died upon it, bearing the sins of man, was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And now those who trust and depend on him in humble, humble faith can be saved. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.